This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Uh, we certainly thank our witnesses uh, for being here. Uh, today's hearing is the fifth in a series of six events we are holding this month to prepare members of the committee to evaluate a possible nuclear agreement with Iran. The focus of this hearing is to examine the circumstances and outcomes of previous negotiations with countries engaged in weapons of mass destruction programs. Our witnesses will help us look at what lessons have been learned by the international community about these programs, as well as understand what parallels can be drawn with the current negotiations underway with Iran. Further, this hearing may help us more fully understand the importance of including critical elements, such as full disclosure of previous military dimensions or anywhere, anytime access of any final deal with Iran. While some may reject comparisons between negotiations with Iran and previous negotiations with North Korea, Libya, or Iraq, there are important lessons that can be drawn from reviewing those experiences, including the reasons for the country to engage in WMD research and development, the factors that brought the international community to the negotiating table, negotiating postures or pressures that worked and did not work, why an agreement was successful or not, and lessons learned from monitoring and the inspection uh, of agreements. Throughout the negotiations with Iran, I have been concerned that this administration has not learned from history and may repeat many of the same mistakes made during the North Korea negotiations. I fear that the administration may again provide the green light for a slow and measured nuclear development program that does little to deter Iran from laying the foundation for a weapons program after it reaps the benefits of sanctions relief. I hope our witnesses can provide us with some insight on the following questions. What are the key circumstances that led to the collapse of agreements and negotiations with North Korea on its nuclear weapons program? Do you see any similar warning signs from Iran? Did the U.S. enter negotiations on WMD programs with Libya, North Korea, and Iraq from a position of strength? Or did the desire to achieve an agreement overshadow key considerations that should have been taken into account? Are there similarities that can be drawn between the negotiations that occurred with Libya, North Korea, and Iraq and the current negotiations with Iran? What specific similarities or glaring contrast should, con should Congress evaluate closest? What political considerations led South Africa to fully dismantle their nuclear weapons program voluntarily? Is there anything about Iran's political calculus that should lead us to believe that they may take the same path? Perhaps most importantly, I hope our witnesses will apply their personal experiences with past negotiations and assess the current state of play with Iran negotiations. Do you believe the deal being no negotiated will go far enough to assure the international community that Iran will never get a nuclear weapon? What components would be necessary in a deal for that to be the case? As I've stated many times before, I want to see, and I think all of us here want to see, a strong agreement with Iran that will prevent them from obtaining a nuclear weapon and hold them accountable. Over the past month, this committee has been educating itself as much as possible so we can fairly evaluate any deal the administration may reach. And as we have met with nuclear scientists, regional experts, and former administration personnel, I have become more and more concerned with the direction of these negotiations and the potential red lines that may be crossed. It is our responsibility to examine this issue and any final deal that may be reached with a skeptic's eye so that we can determine whether it will be in the best interest of our country and the world. 
I hope you will be able to provide some historical perspective on that, and we thank you again for appearing before the committee, and I look forward to your testimony, and now I'll turn it over to our distinguished ranking member, Senator Cardin. Well, Chairman Corker, first, thank you very much uh, for arranging this hearing, and June is a busy month for members of the United States Senate under any scenario, and we all serve on numerous committees. Uh, but the Senate Foreign Relations Committee has been particularly active in the month of June, and I want to thank you for the manner in which we have prepared ourselves for whatever may happen in the negotiations taking place between the P5 plus one and Iran. And I think it's important to point out, we've had incredible participation by all the members of our committee during this month. Uh, there is a, a, a real desire for us to be as prepared as we can uh, to play the appropriate role for Congress uh, if an agreement is reached. So today we continue that. Tomorrow we have a, another opportunity uh, for getting information which I think can be helpful. Today's hearing explores what lessons can draw on from previous negotiations with other countries concerning weapons of mass destruction. Similar debates about the value of arm control occurred during the Cold War. Between 1972 and 1991, the United States and the Soviet Union signed four treaties and one executive agreement that limited offensive nuclear weapons and ballistic miss defenses, missile defenses. Armed control negotiations were often one of the few channels for formal communication between the two nations. The talks provided the United States and the Soviet Union with a forum to air their security concerns and raise questions about their plans and programs. As the volume of shared information grew over the years, each side could replace suspicion about intentions of the other with confidence in its understanding of the capabilities of the other's nuclear forces. The limits also helped each side predict and plan for the future size and shape of the other's forces. To most observers, this process reduced the risk of nuclear war and strengthened U.S. security. It helped both sides avoid worst-case assumptions about the future that could fuel an arms race or undermine stability. In spite of the predictions to the contrary, there was little evidence that the Soviet Union sought to evade the limits in the treaties in a systematic way. Instead, many of the concerns derived from ambiguities in the terms of the treaties were resolved in discussions held in compliance review commissions established by the treaties. Arms control agreements do not mean that all of the disputes between the United States and the Soviet Union disappeared. Quite to the contrary, the United States continued its efforts to reduce Soviet influence in Europe, Asia, Latin America, and the Middle East. The United States continues its effort to highlight the wide range of human rights abuses occurring inside uh, the Soviet Union. One of the lessons I draw from the previous weapons of mass destruction negotiations, such as the Cold War interactions with the Soviet Union, is that meaningful diplomacy combined with pressures under the right conditions can yield positive results for U.S. national security. Our experience with North Korea further demonstrates why an agreement must include full disclosure of a country's activities and be combined with an ironclad inspection and verification regime. That is what we're now seeking with Iran. We need an agreement with Iran that requires the resolution of the possible military dimensions, transparency, and agreement must allow for intrusive inspections and sanctions that will snap back forcefully should Iran breach its obligations. I've said many times, 
the agreement will be evaluated based on having ample time to discover through inspection if Iran is not complying with the agreement so that we can take effective action to prevent them from becoming a nuclear weapon state. That's how we will evaluate the agreement. And I look forward to hearing from our witnesses as we further our own ability to evaluate any potential agreement. Thank you, Senator Cardin. And we'll now turn to our witnesses. Our first witness is William, Mr. William Toby currently senior fellow at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard University. Mr. Toby previously served as Deputy Administrator for the Defense Nuclear Proliferation uh, at Nucle National Nuclear Security Administration. I don't know how you ever introduced yourself. Uh, and on the National Security Council staff in three administrations in defense policy, arms control, and counterproliferation positions. We thank you for being here. Our second witness today is Dr. Graham Allison, Director of the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs, and Douglas Dillon, Professor of Government at Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government. Even though I'll note they're from the same institution, they have very differing views, which is helpful to us. Dr. Allison has also served as Special Advisor to the Secretary of Defense uh, under President Reagan, as Assistant Secretary of Defense for Policy and Plans under President Clinton, and members of the Defense Policy Board for six Secretaries of Defense. So both are obviously very experienced. Uh, I know their testimony is going to be very helpful. Uh, if you could summarize, uh, your written testimony will be entered into the record without objection. Um, and if you go ahead and take about five minutes to give your opening comments, uh, we look forward to your questions. Again, thank you for being here and start, Mr. Toby. Thank you, Senator Corker. And, um Ranking Member uh, Cardin is, and distinguished members of the committee. It's a real honor to be here to discuss a matter of uh, surpassing importance to U.S. national security, and I appreciate that um, opportunity. Applying the lessons of history to our present situation is a matter that's best approached with some humility, and I do. Uh, in reviewing the Iran, North Korea, uh, Libya, Syria, and Iraq cases, five lessons were suggested to me. First, do decisions to disarm or to comply with international obligations are often incremental and incomplete. Even in the case of Muammar Gaddafi, who initiated the discussions, um, Libya's path toward disarmament was full of uh, fits and starts and uh, was not a direct line. Second, temporizing or deception can appear to be progress. The best example of this that I know of actually comes from the Iran talks themselves. In 2004, um, Iran entered into an agreement with European nations uh, that froze their activities. Um, and two years later, uh, Hassan Rouhani, then the negotiator, now the president of Iran, was defending his decision. And he explained that Iran had created a, quote, calm environment it needed to complete the Isfahan uranium conversion facility. So those uh, negotiations served the purpose, in that case anyway, of allowing Iran to advance its nuclear program. Third, intensive verification combined with effective intelligence can deter cheating, while lax verification will in fact foster it. Libya again provides a useful example where the initial declaration of chemical bombs, uh, unfilled chemical bombs, was in the range of 750 to 800 such systems. 
But Tripoli was confronted with a, um, an aggressive verification scheme and ultimately was forced to disclose some 3,000 such munitions. Fourth lesson I would point to is that effective verification is not built on dramatic challenge inspections, but rather on a declaration supported by documentary evidence, checked for inconsistencies, missing elements, and false information to verify its correctness and completeness. The process is exhaustive and painstaking, not dramatic and quick. And I think in some cases there, there's been a misunderstanding about the importance of anytime, anywhere so inspections. That's the last step in the process. Far more important is a comprehensive understanding by international inspectors of the full dimensions of a particular program. And that's why I agree with the statements that the uh, possible military dimensions of Iran's nuclear program are of uh, great importance. The fifth and last lesson I would draw is that inspections and verification are only as effective as their political support. The International Atomic Energy Agency depends on support in the United Nations Security Council. If the council is divided, the IAEA will be handicapped. And we saw in previous instances, their ability to get to the bottom of some of these issues was limited by lack of support from council members. Thank you. Mr. Allison. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. And it's a great honor for me to participate in this discussion. And I'm happy to be here with my colleague, Will Toby, with whom I agree almost entirely with his comments uh, here but we will also have some differences as we usually do when we have lively conversations at Harvard. In any case, let me uh, applaud the committee for its seriousness in trying to drill down on the most important, the most urgent important issue on the agenda currently, namely stopping Iran from getting a nuclear bomb. And also for the way in which you have been pursuing this as a bipartisan undertaking, as, a, as I think exemplified so well in the Corker-Cardin legislation. And also uh, for stepping back from the news chatter of the day to ask about historical lessons that may be relevant for illuminating the challenge that you face. So I took your assignment seriously and spent a few days reviewing essentially 50 years of history in efforts to negotiate and reach agreements to constrain arms starting back at the Non-Proliferation Treaty of 1968. I think the big takeaway from this was summarized best by Mark Twain, who said, history never repeats itself, but it does sometimes rhyme. So as you listen to the rhetoric about the current Iran discussion, you'll hear many echoes from previous debates. And in my uh, uh, written testimony that I submitted, I gave you a number of examples. But to take just one, uh, a leading Washington Post columnist warned that about a threat to the republic, he said, declaring that the president, quote, had accelerated moral disarmament of the West and predicting that actual disarmament will follow. So the columnist was George Will, but who was the president and what was the agreement? And it was Ronald Reagan and the INF agreement of 1987. As Reagan, for whom I worked uh, enthusiastically, uh, observed about this, he said, some of my conservative supporters 
protested that in negotiating with the Russians, I was plotting to trade away our country's future security. I assured them that wasn't the case, but I got a lot of flack from them anyhow. Uh, Secretary of State Schultz, who worked for, who was Reagan's Secretary of State, put the point more, more vividly. He said, quote, critics of the INF Treaty felt that President Reagan and I were naive and that the Soviet Union was not changing as we thought it was and that we should not go forward with the treaty. They were absolutely wrong, deeply wrong. And if they had had their way, it would have been a tragedy. President Reagan was right. Anyway, we stuck to our guns. The treaty was ratified. The Soviet Union changed. And note, it's not there anymore. That's George Schultz. Okay. So what? My big takeaway is this, that if uh, in the foreseeable future, Secretary Kerry and his team bring back a legally binding agreement for stopping Iran's nuclear aspirations and program, verifiably short of a bomb, there'll be many good reasons to support it and many good reasons to oppose it, I can imagine. But they should not include these categorical claims that are made so frequently that simply don't wash if you look at the record. So in fulfilling your responsibility under uh, the Corker-Cardin uh, uh, bill, it's going to be necessary to drill down on the details. And I, as I say, applaud the committee for trying to do that. In the prepared statement, I offer four arguments that I don't think are worthy. Okay? So one claims that the U.S. cannot reach agreements advantageous to us with regimes that are evil. And I cite uh, Churchill, who pointed out he was happy to ally with Stalin against Hitler. And Ronald Reagan who said he was perfectly able to deal with an empire he named and believed was the evil empire. Secondly, he claims that we can't reach advantageous agreements with regimes that inherently lie and cheat and seek to violate the agreement sounds right, but it's wrong. Decades of experience with a lying, cheating Soviet Union showed that good enough compliance was good enough to achieve our objectives. Third, claims that we can't reach advantageous agreements with regimes that are actively engaged in terrorism against us and even killing Americans have a ring of plausibility but turn out to be wrong on the historical record. Look at the fact of in, during Vietnam when we were negotiating a start, or sorry, SALT one, President Nixon, Soviet manned surface-to-air missiles were shooting down American pilots over Vietnam. And finally, the claim that we can't reach advantageous agreements to contain or subvert or overthrow, we can't reach advantageous agreements to constrain arms with regimes whom we're secretly or seriously trying to contain, subvert, or overthrow. Again, sounds right, but turns out to be wrong. I attach to the submission the executive summary of Reagan's strategy for dealing with the Soviet Union, which was deeply classified at the time, but now declassified. Again, as he points out, we resist ex imperialism. We exert internal pressure to weaken the sources of Soviet imperialism. And we engage the Soviet Union in negotiations to reach agreements where they can advance our interests. So just to conclude, I would say, as we think about the debate in, in Iran, I think there are many lessons to be learned from, among others, Ronald Reagan.
Well, thank you both for your testimony, and uh, I uh, assume what you're saying, Dr. Allison, is what matters then is, is the details of the deal, and, and that's obviously what we need to focus on. I, I guess Mark Twain had no idea he was going to be a part of nuclear negotiations at some point, but we thank you for pointing that out. Mr. Toby, in relation to concerns that the administration may not require Iran to adequately address PMD, last week Secretary Kerry stated, this is quote, we know what they did, we have no doubt, we have absolute knowledge with respect to certain military activities they were engaged in, uh, which to me is uh, an incredible statement to be made when I know that we don't know those things. But I would just ask you, um, without requiring Ron to adequately address the issue of PMD, can we be assured that we do, in fact, have absolute knowledge of their past military activities? Should the international community rely on intelligence that may be flawed? Uh, and in what other circumstance has the U.S. and the broader international community relied on intelligence to inform us uh, it, its understanding of the nuclear program, and that turned out to be flawed. I think you can point to a very specific example, but why is PMD so important to a final deal? Senator, those are very important questions that cut to the core of the issue. Um, can we be assured that we have absolute knowledge of Iran's nuclear program without full disclosure of their so-called possible milita military dimensions? No. The answer is no. And the reason for that, and um, it gets to your second question about relying on potentially flawed intelligence, is that in order to have confidence in our ability to verify agreements, we need to be able to use both intelligence information and verification information. They work together and they can check each other. One of the reasons why, in fact, the, the intelligence on Iraq was so flawed, I believe, was that after um, 1998 and Operation Desert Fox, inspectors were not allowed to be in Iraq. And in my opinion, uh, the intelligence community largely just straight-lined the projections where they were headed from before. So without the benefit of the verification uh, activities, they didn't understand what was going on in Iraq. Similarly, though, um, intelligence can help to inform inspection activities. And there are many instances in which that has happened. But to your third question, are there instances in which intelligence has been flawed with respect to uh, evaluating the nuclear programs of other countries? History is replete with them. And the first one that I know of were the projections of when the Soviet Union would get a nuclear weapon. Dr. Allison, do you want to uh, add to that? Sure, thank you. It's a very, very good question. I think that category, as you could probably gather from my introductory comments, categorical claims I'm usually suspicious of. Yeah. So the fact that, quote, we know everything, I, I, I don't know any subject on which yeah. that's true, and including Iran's uh, nuclear uh, program and activity. But where Will and I differ slightly, because I think the PMD issue is a very, extremely important question, if I try to think about, do I have any doubt in the world that Iran has seriously pursued a nuclear weapon? No, 100%, okay, 100%. Uh, do I have any doubt that some people in Iran continue to have that aspiration? No, I would put that down close to 100%. So 
if I'm trying to understand how Iran can be constrained and kept from doing something that it very plausibly wants to do and would, would want to do. I think it, absent the, the danger of being bombed or perhaps even having its regime changed, if, if, if Iran could be assured that would never happen, it would have a bomb. And actually, if you try to think about, your about their perspective, there are quite plausible reasons for wanting a bomb. But that makes the, the, the fact that they want something doesn't mean they should have it. Our objective is to prevent them doing something that they might plausibly want to do, that they have been trying to do, that they will continue to try to do. That's just the definition of the problem. And for that, for me, our national intelligence is 80% of the, of the picture. And what they say and do for the IAEA is 20%. So I'm interested in everything I can find because often when they pr provide a confession of some sort or some information or answer some questions, that gives you a speck of, uh, a speck right. of evidence right. that you can connect. But I think if I look back at the dealing with the Soviet Union, they never, we knew a lot about them, but not very much. They lied, tried to lie and steal when they could. We usually found them, caught them out. There was a procedure for. I'm, I'm going to sort of short circuit this because I want to respect my other members' times. But what I think you're saying is the military dimensions piece is a very important element. And what we have found in other agreements is when those declarations take place, those little snippets of information that we get from scientists have actually helped us find and uncover programs. And for the United States to enter into an agreement with Iran that doesn't fully cause them to come clean on PMD on the front end would be a flawed agreement. Just almost, okay, in my view, just with respect. So in Please the case shortly of the, disagree. In the case, no, in the case of the Soviet Union, we didn't have any equivalent of PMD. They didn't give right. us any track of what the stuff they were doing. We were having to figure that out for ourselves. In the case even of Iraq, after we defeated them in a war. So we defeated Iraq in 1991 in a very decisive war. They were... Uh, we, 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 we imposed on this country essentially semi-sovereignty, areas where they couldn't operate. They told us what they were going to tell us. Only when a brother-in-law defected, went to a different country, and told us more information did we end up finding a treasure trove. So I think it's a combination of the intelligence and every other source we can get. But the intelligence is the big, the, the tall pole in the tent for me. I... Uh We'll semi-filibuster beyond other questions. I'll, I'll get those uh, later. But uh, thank you both for your fulsome answers. And Senator Cardin. Again, Mr. Chairman, thank you for, for arranging this hearing. I think everyone here agrees that our first priority is to resolve international conflicts through diplomacy and use our military as a last resort. So Dr. Allison, your comment about entering into agreements by necessity, it's going to be with bad actors, because that's how we avoid the, the need for, for our military. So I think your observations are, are very much um, in keeping with the historic uh, six, uh, use of diplomacy to avoid uh, military actions. Uh, I, I want to talk about, I, first, we're trying, we're all of us, I hope, are remaining objective until we see an agreement. And we, we ha we, we're trying to get prepared. And as you point out, we're drilling down, and that's exactly what we are. We're trying to drill down to try to understand, because we're going to be under 
um, uh, not only a time restraints, but just the, the, the comprehensive aspects of any agreement. Could you just share with us uh, briefly, please, where you think the most vulnerable aspects of the framework agreement that we should concentrate on in order to make sure that this agreement will be the most effective in preventing Iran from becoming a nuclear weapon state. We could concentrate on all the good things that are likely in the framework that will be accomplished, and I understand that. But where do you see the most challenging aspects of the framework agreement from the point of view of achieving our objective of uh, preventing Iran from becoming a nuclear weapon state. Thank you. So, again, to try to be brief, uh, uh, there, there are a half dozen, but I'll just focus on one. I, I think the most important is the cluster of things that we call uh, verification, inspection, and challenge. Uh, and as I say, I think this is only 20% of the information that I want. I want to work hard on the intelligence side, too. And I think, actually, as you think about it, looking at that whole picture. But uh, if Iran gets a bomb in the next 10 or 15 or 20 years, what is the likelihood that it happens at the facilities that we're constraining at Natanz and Isfahan? I would say less than 1%. So they're going to get a bomb either by... Uh, building a bomb covertly somewhere, or buying a bomb or material for a bomb. So I worry about those way more than I worry about what happens at Natanz, and that's why I don't care so much whether there's 5,000 or 6,000 or 7,000 centrifuges. But with respect to the inspection and verification regime, there, what we learn that can complement the intelligence picture that we already have, that's the place where I would look for the, that's very for helpful. the, for the beef. And, it, and so, for example, if, I, if, if the procedures call for continuous inspection and surveillance of every place where they make centrifuges and centrifuge parts, that excites me a lot because if they don't have centrifuges, they're not going to enrich uranium. If we, so the, the eyes on the whole set of steps from mining and milling right through are the pieces that I would push on. And Mr. Toby, the same question. Where do you see the most vulnerable part of the framework that we should be concentrating on? I think there are two things that are, are vulnerabilities. First is the duration of the agreement, and some of the, measure, some of the central limitations expire after 10 years. Some of them last a bit longer. But as President Obama said, by year 13, the so-called breakout time may, may be back to zero. Um, and so, and at that point, of course, all sanctions will be off, and Iran will um, justifiably argue that they've fulfilled their agreement, their obligations under the agreement, and there should be no further sanctions uh, imposed upon them. The second issue, and it gets to what uh, Graham alluded to, is the covert path. Mm -hmm. um, this, the main focus of the joint plan of action, as I understand it, has been on the overt path, the declared facilities. The covert path is a far more likely one for Iran to use in pursuit of a weapon. And that is one of the reasons why, again, I return to the importance, as you both have alluded to, of the so-called possible military dimensions. Because unless we understand who did what, where, when, we won't be able to keep track of those people, places, equipment, and sites. That, and know that they aren't being used in the future. It's very helpful. So, 
Looking at, from the historic perspective in previous negotiations to today, one thing that's changed is technology. We have greater capacity today to understand what is taking place in a country through the technologies that have been developed. Could you just briefly comment as to whether technology today can be used in a way to alleviate some of our concerns on the inspection and verification issues as compared to the previous negotiation agreements that we've entered into? Either one. Dr. Allison, briefly, please. Thank, thank you. Since the center that we both come from is called the Center for Science and International Affairs, we love that question, but I'll try to be brief. The answer is yes, the technologies have, keep, have changed unbelievably and continue changing. And one of the reasons why the Iran case is easier than North Korea, for example, is that it's a fairly porous society, and that in particular, in the period after the false uh, alarm about Iraq, the American intelligence community has devoted a lot of effort to, I'm sure you all have gotten uh, uh, private hearings about this, but I think the amount of information about what's going on inside Iran now is just not even, I mean, it's a, th a thousand times what, when I used to try to figure out what's going on in the Soviet Union, and main, mainly because of technology. Uh, Mr. Toby? I would say that technology helps, but it's not a perfect solution. And I would also note that it's a cat and mouse game. Iran has been caught with covert facilities now um, at their original enrichment facility uh, at Natanz and then in Qom, and they're learning from these mistakes. Um, a, an enrichment facility that would be capable of producing a, a weapons worth of material in a year would fit into an average-sized supermarket and draw about the same amount of power. Iran's a big country. It's pretty easy to hide such a thing. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Flight. Thank you, and thank you, Mr. Chairman, for holding this hearing. and appreciate the testimony. Mr. Toby, you talk about five lessons learned uh, looking at other negotiations. Uh, to what extent do you think our negotiators are, are uh, taking uh, this experience uh, and applying these, these principles? I know it's an experienced team, and I know they're backed by professionals at the State Department who have been through a lot of these same negotiations, but I don't have any detailed insight into what the negotiators are thinking. What, are there any red flags out there right now? What uh, do you consider the biggest uh, you know, inconsistencies with past experience? Well, um, again, and I hate to harp on this, but I do believe it's of central importance. It would be whether or not we do get through this issue of um, past or the, the uh, possible military dimensions. I would note that we had a similar instance in the North Korea negotiations. When the agreed framework was negotiated, the IAEA wanted to inspect a waste facility that they believe could have given them insight into the total amount of plutonium North Korea had pr produced. North Korea refused absolutely, said, nope, we're not going to do that. Similar to what Iran has said about possible military dimensions. Ultimately, the United States made the decision that in order to get an agreement, they had to drop insistence on that point, and the IAEA was undercut. So uh, the decision in the 90s was not to sacrifice the future for an issue of the past. Uh, Dr. Allison, uh, I sense from your comments a bit of a caveat. You noted there is one with regard to PMD. Um, 
uh, where, I mean, there are important aspects of it, but you say we, we can make certain assumptions about their past program and about their desire for a future program. Beyond that, uh, what, what is the most important part of uh, uh, PMD? Uh, is it uh, simply to provide a benchmark for the IAEA to go forward? Uh, and what, uh, is it possible to move on without a full accounting? Uh, could you elaborate a little more on that? I sense that you wanted to before. So th thank you very much. So I, I, I think Will and I have a difference that you picked up over how much, how important, what level of disclosure with respect to PMD will be. Because I will assume that the Iranians will come. To, I mean, there are two things that are in the agreement, as I understand it now, that are demanded. One are interviewing the scientists. I'd be very interested in that. Mm -hmm. And two is visiting some sites that have been off limit. And I would be interested in that. But if you ask me, what am I expecting to learn from them that really matters? Not very much, not very much. And am I expecting them to confess that they've been beating their wife? No, I don't think they will. There's no doubt that they were. There's no doubt they will in the future. But I don't think they'll confess to this. So what I'm doing, though, is looking for, as Will said, any little pieces or specks of information that may add to the picture. And the more I get, the better. Now, similarly, every time there's a defector, this is a spectacular event. So it, it's not different than the rest of the intelligence collection. And I think for the committee, if, 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 they, if the negotiators bring back an agreement, you may want to drill down with folks from the intelligence community asking how many additional peepholes does this provide for us with the, with the system that's set up? And what are the other things that you believe you could learn if it were even more fulsome? Thank you. Um, there's a lot of discussion on whether or not, uh, as we judge whether this is a good deal or not, uh, what the alternative is. If, if sanctions, uh, if we went ahead with current sanctions, interim agreement went away, we weren't able to reach a final agreement. Uh, breakout time, we estimate, is somewhere two months or so. Is that uh, consistent with, with what you think? And so, some say, well, well, Iran wouldn't go there because they know that, that uh, we would strike. And, and why gain, why try that when they can wait and legally do it in 10 or 12 years? Do you see it uh, in, in that simple of terms, uh, Dr. Graham? Um, what, uh, in terms of Iran's motivation here, um, why wouldn't uh, kicking the can down the road, uh, at worst case scenario, be better than allowing them within two months to, to uh, close well, it, the deal? It's a, it's a difficult question, and it's a, it's a good one. I mean, basically, what happened over the last 10 years is that Iran went from being 10 years away from a bomb to two months away from a bomb. And they proceeded steadily whenever they had a chance. From time to time, there was a pause. When they, feel, when they felt threatened, there was a, you know, there's a, you could see some little inflections in the line, but basically creeping, creeping, creeping. And whether this is for establishing the knowledge of how to do something in my covert site, if I were the Iranian planner, so I've been doing, this is mainly my overt facility, but it's my learning lab, and I have my more advanced centrifuges that I'm gonna operate somewhere, that would be possible. Would it be possible they stay where they are? I think the hardest part for us will be if there turn out, turns out to be an agreement, 
and for whatever reason the U.S. decides we're not in favor of it in the end, what's going to happen to the sanctions regime? Mm -hmm. Because the sanctions regime we should not take for granted. It's been a pretty extraordinary thing to get the various parties to agree to the amount of constraints that they have, but you can already see it fraying at the edges, and I think in particular it'll be a, it'll be a, a, a problem uh, to imagine what will happen to the sanctions regime. It, I mean, we can't simply hit the pause button and keep everything in place. Other dynamics will probably be at work undermining what we now think of as the sanctions regime. But even if in the current sanctions regime, they've moved from, as you say, 10 years to within a couple of months. Well, except so that they, they moved at different paces in the regime. If you, if you look back at it, it was kind of a nibbling regime or even, a, I would say, symbolic sanctions for quite a long time. Not until the Senate actually put in the biting sanctions in the defense appropriation bill in 12 did you see a sharp drop in their oil exports. So that was the place where it had the biggest impact. And then we had the good fortune of oil prices falling in half, which has therefore also impacted their income. Thank you. Thank you, thank you Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, thank you both for your, your testimony. You know, the agreed framework uh, agreement with North Korea, um, in my view, failed in large part over something that was not explicitly covered was, was uh, Pyongyang's covert development of a uranium enrichment program. And while we assessed as it was uh, against the spirit of the agreement uh, and that they were obligated to reveal all details of its nuclear activities, it was not laid out as covered uh, in the fine print. So how likely is it that the P5 plus one are making the same mistake in the proposed new agreement, permitting non-specificity about Iran's nuclear activities in order to get a agreement concluded. What sort of non-covered activities by Iran could undermine the basic purpose of an agreement? I invite either one of you to. Well, that's an, an excellent question. Um, Those are the, the only questions we ask here. Right? <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding, a little humor. But. Um, in the case of North Korea, the North-South Denuclearization Agreement and the Non-Proliferation Treaty did prohibit the actions that N North Korea took. Um, I guess what I would say, is, though, is that there were no verification, essentially no verification um, features of the agreed framework that would have applied to the, um, the uranium path, the uranium enrichment path. And, of course, the, the North Koreans drove a truck through that loophole. Um, the question really is, what will Iran have to declare and what will it not have to declare under the, the new agreement? And I don't yet know what that looks like. I do know that Iran has not yet and has never uh, submitted a complete and correct declaration of all its nuclear activities. Again, the, the question is that it takes a long, it's long and complicated, but just to try to do the, the brief of it. I think there's no doubt that the constraints constrain what we can see, but don't constrain and, and don't, don't erase a overall set of impulses or competition that's going on otherwise. That's what arms control was about with the Soviet Union. We would constrain an area very dangerous for us, but continue competing with them on everything else, including undermining the regime. 
And that was a, that's what we were doing. I thought wisely, wisely. So in this case, in the case of North Korea, there was an agreement to shut down Yonbang. It shut down. There was no additional plutonium produced in North Korea from 1994 to 2002. And that's a good thing, because otherwise, once it turned back on, there's six more bombs worth of plutonium. They then proceeded in another path that neither the inspection regime, or more importantly, in my view, than did Wells, our American intelligence community could discover. Eventually, we discovered a piece of it, and then we tried to deal with them. They're, they're a particularly recalcitrant party to try to deal with. But I would say, shame on our intelligence as much as on whatever. Well, here is part had. of the problem. Uh, first, uh, we, you yourself said, uh, Mr. Toby, that we don't know the full verification of uh, all of the sites, number one. We would have to depend upon our intelligence to know about undeclared sites. That in the past hasn't always worked in a timely fashion. Thirdly, uh, we have a set of circumstances under which this is not about Iran just pleading guilty to their intent to pursue nuclear weapons. We, I think the world has come to that conclusion notwithstanding what they say. But it is about understanding how far along they got in terms of their weaponization efforts. And even though I see the Secretary of State make rather definitive statements that we know how far they got, General Hayden, who was the CIA director and had all of the access to all of the intelligence, including on this element of the portfolio, said that we have estimates, but we have no conclusive uh, evidence of how far they got. So the purpose of coming forth with and being clean on the weaponization, the possible military weaponization uh, elements of it, is not about admitting guilt. I'm really not interested in that. But it is no about how far they got along. And when I read that we have no definitive understanding of that, we have estimates, well, that's a dangerous conclusion because that all adds to your complicated equation of breakout time and other elements. So I think that that's incredibly important. The other thing is one of the prevailing presumptions behind the negotiation of an agreed framework agreement with North Korea was that the US and South Korea would never have to deliver the civilian nuclear reactors call for under it because the North Korean regime was on its last legs and that would be soon be presumably a more peaceful regime in place. Now, that was unfortunately extremely wrong. Uh, aren't we making the same mistake regarding Iran and a proposed new agreement? To what uh, extent is there an assumption here that in 10 years or so, the Iranian regime will either be significantly different in its quest for nuclear weapons uh, capability, or uh, that it will have changed its mindset, of which everything indicates to us that its mindset is that it's about regime preservation at any cost. It's about preserving the elements of the revolution. And it is uh, about achieving nuclear weapons as a way of preserving the regime in addition to supporting its hegemonic interests. That's a dramatic change uh, that we are looking to see in 10 years. Seems to me very aspirational, uh, but not rooted in reality. Can you comment on that? Um, ab absolutely, I, I agree wholeheartedly with, um, with your point, Senator. The, 
Secretary Kerry has understandably said that it's unacceptable that Iran be two months away from a nuclear weapon. I don't understand if that's the case, why then it would be acceptable in 10, 12, or 15 years for Iran to be two months away or less from a nuclear weapon. And to return briefly to one of your points about um, the, the so-called, they often called past activities, but it's not at all clear they are past activities, uh, the possible military dimensions. The administration itself sanctioned a number of Iranian individuals and entities on August 29th, 2014. One of them went by an acronym SPND. It's headed by Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, and the administration has alleged that he's been in charge of the Iranian nuclear weapons program. He's been sanctioned by the United Nations Security Council. The sanctions notice that went out on August 29th, 2014, said that SPND was engaged in nuclear weapons development work, current work. So there seems to be an understanding by the administration that that work is not something of the past. And until we understand exactly its extent, I don't understand how we can have a successful agreement. So again, you raised uh, three different questions. Let me briefly. First, are we going to have any confidence that Iran is not pursuing a nuclear weapon? Uh, no. And I would say we should take it to the bank. They are pursuing a nuclear weapon. We're trying to constrain some element of that. For example, we don't know today that Iran has not bought a nuclear weapon or material for a bomb from North Korea. They're not going to confess that to us. We would have to discover that ourselves. If, I mean, if I were running the Iranian program, I might have had all this going on like a conjurer's act to keep you focused over here while I'm doing my business over here. The, they're not going to confess that to the IAEA. The IAEA is not going to find it. We're going to have to find it from our intelligence. And what will prevent them doing that is their fear that we'll discover them. And I'm in favor of every conceivable source we can have, but I think we should take it as a hard, I mean, the chairman started with the question, can we be assured that Iran never gets a nuclear weapon? The answer is absolutely not. This is a forever challenge for us. You can't have this agreement, put a bow around it and say, boy, this one is solved or this thing is in the box, not in the box. I'd say this is a continuing long-term struggle. That's the first thing. Secondly, on the 1994 and Korea, yes, there was a belief in the U.S. The government, CAA said, John Deutsch, our colleague and friend, North Korean regime is going to collapse because having not predicted the collapse of the Soviet Union three years before, the CIA, in its usual form, makes a countervailing error, okay? So predicts somebody else is going to collapse. It was not an incredible idea at the time, but it turned out not to be right. But we didn't predict when regimes collapsed. 1991, the Soviet Union, that was not predicted by CIA. We didn't predict uh, correctly that North Korea was going to be, you know, have the staying power that's done. So I would not make my judgment about the Iranian uh, agreement on the basis of my forecast of whether the regime is going to collapse or not. Thank you very much. If I, I might just add before Senator, going to Senator Badu with North Korea, we gave sanctions relief without causing them to comply on the front end and it led to them getting a nuclear weapon and I think there's a lot of concern at present about the type of sanctions relief we may allow here on the front end prior to many of the things we're raising uh, being completed. Senator Blue. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I want to thank you and the ranking member for uh, the bipartisan nature of this uh, effort over the last few months. Um, 
I mean, I think we all agree the goal here is that we do whatever we can for as long as we can to make sure Iran doesn't have a nuclear weapon. Um, not now, not in 10 years, not ever. And uh, Dr. Allison, I couldn't agree more. I think it's an ongoing effort. There's no one document that's gonna protect that. Um, Mr. Toby, you mentioned um, the vulnerabilities, and I agree with you that the two things that worry me is if the agreement stands as, as we understand it today, that in 10 years, as the President says, that the breakout time goes to zero for Iran to become a nuclear weapon state, let's assume for the moment that doesn't happen. So then we move to your second concern of, of the covert nature and I think, Dr. Allison, that's the, the area that long-term is mo more concerning to me. I, I'm not too concerned about what they declare they're doing in their overt effort. It's what they can do in their covert. Fordow is a good example, Natanz. I mean, the combination of our own inspection and our own intelligence failed us over the last six, seven, eight, ten years in that regard. I want to go, though, before I ask more about Fordow and intelligence, I want to ask about Libya and North Korea. Can both of you give us your experiences of one being a reasonable success in Libya, where we control weapons uh, control, um, weapons development, and then in North Korea, where it was a catastrophic failure. Dr. Um, Mr. Toby, would you? Um sure. Um, in Libya, I think the case was one of the important differences with what seems to be going on in Iran was an insistence that Libya make a strategic decision not to pursue nuclear weapons. Um, that was why there was an insistence there, that there be a statement by Gaddafi. And there, it was part of the negotiations that we wanted evidence that this wasn't merely temporizing on their part, but a watershed event that represented a real change in Libyan policy. One of the things that disturbs me about the Iran uh, agreement, if, if we get one, is that no one seems to believe that this would be a, a fundamental change in Iranian policy. It would delay uh, some of their aspirations, but it wouldn't end them. Um, with respect to North Korea, I think that was the, the case. The opposite was the case. We were never able to get any assurance from the North that they had halted their nuclear weapons aspirations. And in fact, the negotiator of the, uh, of the agreed framework, Ambassador Gallucci, uh, said that they understood, or that the Clinton administration understood, even while it was still in office, that the North was cheating and pursuing a, uh, a, a uranium path. Dr. Allison? So th they're both very interesting cases, uh, and both, I think, uh, quite different from the Iran case, but worth looking at the lessons. In North Korea, it, one needs to notice structurally to start with, how different North Korea is from almost anything else. It's the hardest case. Structurally, first, there's no credible military threat against North Korea. Secondly, North Korea has a great power guardian who won't let it get squeezed too much. And thirdly, North Korea has an autarkic economy that's almost separated from the world. Let me go through the pieces very quickly. So there's no credible military threat against North Korea. We have a treaty-bound the alliance with South Korea, who is deterred by North Korea. So whenever it comes to a choice between yielding and threatening a war that would create, that would destroy Seoul, North Co South Korea blinks. That's a, that's a problem. That's not the case with Iran. Actually, the neighbors are encouraging us to act, okay? Secondly, they have a great power guardian, China. So when one tries to squeeze them economically, China doesn't allow it to threaten the regime. 
that not the case with Iran, unless Russia would have come to be a really, really bad actor, which is one reason to keep your eye on Russia. And thirdly, an autarkic economy. So I would say that situation is entirely different. In the case of Libya, which is also interestingly different, Libya was a pipsqueak country to start with. It was isolated. It's got like six million people, uh, was just basically pumping oil. And you had in Gaddafi a, a thug that was running the regime. After the Bush administration toppled Saddam, he was terrified. And there was talk around town, including by some of my friends who said, hey, we can just do Libya on the way home. Well, it wasn't like a big operation. Uh, so being terrified by a credible military threat, he was moved to act. Okay? I would say if we could imagine a, an, an equivalent situation uh, for Iran, that would be a big motivator. I think it's hard to imagine after we seem exhausted for a couple of wars that we've already had. I'm sorry, Dr. Allison, you said uh, that inspection verification challenge, that's part of our inspection regime. But as we, as we talk about, uh, you know, we're not going to, I'm not too worried about what they're telling us and what we see in inspection. What I'm really worried about is longer term, past this agreement, over the next decade or so, our ability to manage and watch and pick up through our intelligence efforts what they're doing covertly. Um, I have two questions. One is, do you guys believe, both of you believe that we have a third option here um, after this, if this negotiation fails, besides war? that doubling down on sanctions could, in fact, help us long-term uh, keep Iran from becoming a nuclear weapon state. And secondly, behind that, what's your experience and what's your confidence that our intelligence network today can help us maintain uh, uh, confidence that, um, that we know what's going on covertly within uh, Iran? Mr. Tugley, quickly, I'm, I'm about out of time, sorry. Okay. I do believe there's a third option. Of course, there are, there are measures between capitulation and war. Um, there are plenty of things that we could do. Um, with respect to intelligence, um, you know, Iran is a hard target. And um, we have had some intelligence successes, but I don't think we can bet all that would be bet on whether or not Iran gets a nuclear weapon on our intelligence successes. I, I agree with, with Will. So the, on the intelligence piece, I think that we will never know for sure. We'll never know for sure. And it'll be very important if there's an agreement reached that we don't lose interest in Iran. That, so I think they, from the bigger perspective of the committee, making sure that the intelligence community keeps this as a top priority, assuming that this is a country that will get a nuclear weapon whenever, and, whenever, whenever it could. With respect to the sanctions, I think it would be good to double down on sanctions, though I can't imagine the political strategy that would keep the rest of the parties together for doing so, unless Iran should walk away from the table. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thanks to the witnesses for your interesting and provocative testimony. Um, a number of folks in this country and with our allies who are fairly harsh critics of starting the negotiation with Iran have, at least to me, grudgingly said that they think actually the activity since November of 2013, and particularly under the, under the JAPOA, has been better than the status quo ante. That the, the concerns that the Prime Minister Netanyahu was raising for the UN about the 20% enriched uranium stockpile, et cetera, that there, that there has been an improvement in the status quo as a result of the JAPOA. Do you share that view before we get to a final deal? Do you share the view that this uh, JAPOA period was an improvement over what was existing before? My view is that it was neither an historic agreement nor an historic mistake. 
it's, it was a standstill agreement that allowed talks to continue, and the value of that standstill agreement is best assessed when we find out what the final agreement is. And, this, and the standstill compared to an earlier period where there wasn't standing still, where there was, there was forward progress on the nuclear program, correct? Correct, mm -hmm. yes. And certainly there were some elements like the reduction in 20% uranium that were, were quite constructive. Mm -hmm. I, I, I agree. In fact, there's a little brochure that the Belfort Center put out on kind of the facts about the agreement. And if you look at it, there's a curve that co that's going steadily up from 10 years ago until to two months, and then it freezes. So the agreement actually succeeded in freezing and, act and also rolling back with respect to the 20% activity that you would otherwise think would have just continued along the trend line. I agree with what both of you said in earlier questions that there's not two options here, a, a, an acceptable diplomatic agreement or war. There's also some middle grounds, and middle grounds may include doubling down on sanctions. Middle grounds may include continuing under a JPOA framework with a standstill and modest re relief of escrowed funds. So there are other options, I do believe that. Um, you've both talked about the inspections. The thing that I'm most interested in that I'm going to jump right to when there's a deal is looking at the intrusive nature of the inspections and particularly with respect to giving us any confidence about the uh, covert nature of the program. But um, I want to talk about inspections in the context of having a credible military threat. A credible military threat, in my view, toward, toward uh, uh, stopping Iran from getting a nuclear weapon is, is composed of sort of capacity, um, backbone, but also the degree of information you have. Would you agree with me that we have a more credible military threat the more information we have about the scope of an Iranian nuclear program. And, which, and so that seems easy enough, kind of almost a truism. And in terms of information, we have intel right now. We've used intel, or it's been widely reported that we've taken steps with others that have slowed down the Iranian nuclear program based on intel. But would you agree with me that intel plus what you get from an intrusive inspections regime is better than just intel? And so to the extent that an agreement that's put on the table has an inspections regime that is a significant one, and to the extent that we do what Dr. Allison said, which is maintain and maybe even grow our intel capacities, intel plus the information we get out of an intrusive inspections uh, will help us have a more credible military threat because we would be able to more precisely target military activity, God forbid, should we ever need to, to stop. Uh, Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. Absolutely, and I think the way you put it is uh, very uh, uh, logical. So we're working an intelligence problem all the time, and intelligence is essential for having a credible military threat. A question to ask about the agreement, if it comes to you, is what does the inspection and verification regime add to our current intelligence? What else are we getting that we don't already have? It's good for the IAEA to get it, even if we already have it, because that adds to the international legitimacy. But for us, because we have to take care, for, in the first instance of this as our own problem, what are the additional, the, the, that, what else would we have in terms of a picture of what's going on in Iran, particularly for, in the covert arena, if we get a deal that has the parameters as described for verification and inspection. And I, having looked at or, or listened to a briefing on what people think they're gonna bring back, there would be a big plus 
if I were sitting back in the intelligence community, for my picture of what's going on. But I think the, de the devil will be in those mm -hmm. details. And if we listen to the Supreme Leader yesterday, a lot of those details don't seem to be you know, settled. Yeah. The inspection regime laid out in the April 2 framework included some components that were you know, 10, 15, 20, even 25 years. But one of the items in the framework was the acceptance of the IAEA additional protocol, which was listed to be a permanent um, accession to that additional protocol. And so these are the kinds of things that I know I'm going to be looking at to see what kind of what kind of information are we going to get through this inspections regime that will add to the intel that we can already develop. And Dr., uh, Mr. Toby, your testimony, one of your five lessons is, is the better the inspection regime, the more we can deter cheating um, together with existing intel. And I would say a caveat to that, or maybe a corollary, the better the inspections regime plus our intel, the more we can have a credible military threat, or at least that's an element of a credible military threat. What lessons do you draw from um, the you know, kind of earlier WMD negotiation experiences in terms of the nature of the regime you're dealing with? Um, you know, you, used, you talked about Libya as a pipsqueak regime. Uh, Iran has more of an imperial, I, I think Iran is on kind of a historic rejuvenation project um, where they are trying to reclaim uh, an element of social greatness that they have had uh, in the past. And that's kind of part of what motivates the regime right now. And becoming part of the nuclear club in the, in the modern parlance is one of the ways you show you are, you know, um, you know, at the cutting edge of a science and technology in a, in a leading society. But, but talk about earlier WMD negotiations and the nature of the regime itself and how that makes you view this particular negotiation. I think you're exactly right. At the strategic level, Iran is looking for a regional resurgence. Um, at a more tactical level, in terms of how the insight into the regime, I think that there is important insight, maybe not determinative, determinative insight offered into, the, into Iran's willingness to comply by how they treat this disclosure issue. So if, if in fact, they continue to stiff the IAEA, mm -hmm. I think we gain insight into whether or not they're likely to comply with a future agreement. So I agree here that the regime issue matters a lot. I think in the case of the Soviet Union, uh, people who saw it clearly had no illusions about the regime. This was a regime that was determined to bury us. So the, the agreements were agreements to constrain the competition simply in one arena in order to intensify the competition in other areas. Mm -hmm. If you were betting in the long run that we were going to be stronger because we have a free society, we have a market economy, we have a dynamic society, that was Ronald Reagan's bet. Lo and behold, in the end, this is going to turn out badly for them. So I would say, again, if I try to think about it, the fact that the regime is, I know, inherently evil is perfectly fine to deal with. Those are the, that's what you, that's international relations. With respect to your first question, which I think is an extremely good one, so how does the intelligence relate to credible military threats? And it's very interesting, I, I should have put it in my testimony, but I'll send it to you. So the person who, who's a colleague of ours, an Israeli, Amos Yadlin, who led the attack on Osirak, who planned the attack on Syria, and who was uh, Bibi's, uh, uh, the head of military intelligence, planning for Iran. 
he, here's what he says about the agreement. He says, military action against the Iranian program in 2025, that is if the agreement, in 2025, would in all probability not be much more complicated or difficult than in 2015. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you to the witnesses. Thank you, Senator Markey. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, very much. Um, can you just talk a little bit about Iran and how they view their need to have a nuclear weapon, given what happened in Libya and what happened in Iraq and the lesson drawn that we don't attack North Korea, we don't attack um, uh, countries that have nuclear weapons, uh, but we do attack those that we're sure do not because we absolutely verified that they do not. So what lesson did they draw from that in terms of the confidence that we can have that any inspections regime can be successful? I don't, I don't think we're allowed to uh, talk about this in public, but I will say, uh, I'm teasing, the uh, Eric Edelman, who's a friend, and who was President George W. Bush's undersecretary for policy in the planning for the attack on Iraq, has said the following, and I'm quoting. He said, in terms of what lessons we've taught, if you are like Iraq and you don't, do not have nuclear weapons, you get invaded. But if you're like Libya and you give up your nuclear weapons, we will only bomb you. So again, it's hard for Americans to say. Here's what the Supreme Leader said. His, his doing the lessons after Libya. He said, Gaddafi wrapped up all his nuclear facilities, packed them on a ship, and delivered to them to the West and said, take them. Look what position he's in now. So I think we have to take it as a fact that regimes that fear uh, being attacked by us on the basis of the record would therefore be motivated to have nuclear weapons. That makes the problem harder for us. It does not mean they should succeed. So can you talk about that, Mr. Toby? Essentially, Gaddafi and Saddam wound up in the same situation, pretty much in the same ditch, uh, after they gave up their nuclear weapons programs. Well, I, I think you've, you've made the important point, um, you and Graham and Eric Edelman. Um, I think it's something to be regretted that what had been a non-proliferation success in Libya um, may be tarnished because it taught lessons to others around the world that will be painful for us. So then, if I can go back to you, Dr. Allison. So you, you uh, draw an important distinction between material cheating and marginal cheating uh, in your uh, testimony. Uh, and there's no question that on this committee, if there is, in fact, material cheating, which is found, that this committee will act quickly if there is no action which is taken by our government or the world, we, we will move quickly to reimpose sanctions. How do we do with marginal um, violations? Um, that's going to be the gray area. And what do you recommend to us if we can't find the material, but there's enough suspicion of a marginal violation? What, what should the American response be? Uh, extremely hard question. So I think in the negotiations, uh, folks have been trying to figure out what are the procedures for dealing with cases of known or suspected violations, both marginal and material. And in the case of dealing with the Soviet Union or now Russia, this continues to be a, an issue. 
So we have to, I think, first depend on our own intelligence, though we're happy for any other help we get from anybody else for discovering such cases. For example, in the case of the Soviet Union, they were b building radars at Krasnoyarsk, back, you'll remember, in the, back in the Cold War, and we called it out. There came to be an issue of what are our, what's our recourse? Because if we can't impose some equivalent of pain or punishment, it's very hard, even if a person has cheated or violated the agreement, to get them to come back into compliance. In that, in that case, in the end, they had to give up the radars, and they did. So I would say in this case, it would be worth, as you see the final details of the agreement, to see what process they have for doing this, because I know they've addressed it, they've attempted to address it. I don't know whether they'll do so successfully. So just um, following on the, the issue of Iran and how they perceive us, how, how does um, a perception that the United States still supports regime change inside of Iran complicate the P5 plus one negotiations, um, knowing that we still harbor, or some in America still harbor this ambition that the entire government be toppled. What does that do to the negotiations and our ability to get intrusive inspections uh, successfully uh, completed? Well, again, my, my take on it is that, uh, uh, as uh, another colleague, uh, Bob Kagan, wrote a book, he said, the dangerous nation, and in, I mean, in the train that you're on, you know, we're a dangerous nation in that we do believe that these are bad regimes, and we do believe that they should change. This is a problem in dealing with Mr. Putin. It's a problem in dealing with President Xi. So they looking at our, uh, and we cannot say that we don't think that they're bad regimes, or we don't think that they're a violation of human rights, or we don't think so that, and I think as he looks at us, he thinks when we talk verification, he thinks we're doing target to, uh, 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 acquisition. So I think that produces a, a extreme uh, uh, struggle. But I think, but I'd say in the case of the Soviet Union, it was a struggle. We should, we should not assume anything other than the worst, and we did, should try to deal with the worst, and then that's the, that's the task. But it, it, do you think, given what happened in Iraq, given what happened in Libya, um, that the toppling actually led to a worst-case scenario unfolding uh, rather than a best-case, do you think we should be more humble in terms of our public pronouncements of the goal to topple the Iranian uh, government and just be happy if we can get an intrusive nuclear weapons re uh, regime and then to isolate it in its regional ambitions, its terrorist activities? Uh, or should we allow this kind of cloud to still be over the discussions that at the back of our minds, and they're looking at Libya, obviously, and the Ayatollah has talked about that, Iraq, uh, that, uh, that we make it more difficult for ourselves to get true compliance with um, an inspections regime. Again, I'd say two things quickly. The first, that, that even if we said that we weren't, they wouldn't believe it, uh, and, and it might not be true. And secondly, uh, that I think that the, uh, the idea of being more humble about our 
aspirations to change regimes by use of force, mm -hmm. I think is a lesson that we're, we're trying to learn and that we should learn because if, we be, if we're betting, Reagan's argument was a very interesting argument. He said, we're on the right side of history. If we have our society perform effectively, lo and behold, most of these other societies will not perform because of all their inherent contradictions, and in the end, it's going to turn out okay. So that's, I, would, I would go back to a bet more of that sort than trying by force to change the regimes. And I think actually, in the case of Libya, I agree with Will. We've, we've debated this at Harvard a lot. I mean, yes, Gaddafi was a horrible, horrible uh, uh, person. Yes, he was doing horrible, horrible things. But if you look at Libya today, it's hard to say it's better. Yeah. I'll rock the same way. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Welcome. So nice to have both of you here today. And uh, always nice to see you, Dr. Allison. Um, and I apologize for having missed your testimony because I had another um, commitment. But so if you have uh, addressed some of these issues, um, I hope you don't mind doing it again. I wonder, Dr. Allison, if you could talk about how the Iranian negotiations differ from the North Korean ne negotiations because I know there's a, there are often comparisons to the two and the fact that you know, we negotiated with North Korea and, and we weren't successful, and now they're on a path to producing more weapons. Sorry, we discussed a little earlier. I said, I think in thinking about North Korea and Iran, one needs to start with, the, with three big structural factors in the case of North Korea. First, against North Korea, we did not have a credible military threat. Secondly, North Korea has a great power guardian. And third, North Korea has an autarkic economy that basically struggles and survives by a little bit of dealing with China, but mainly on its own. We don't have a credible military threat because we have a, a defensive alliance with South Korea, and South Korea has been effectively deterred by North Korea by ability to destroy Seoul. Uh, China is not prepared to see North Korea squeezed to the point that it collapses. So whenever the sanctions begin to bite, China violates them. And thirdly, the North Korean economy barely survives, you know, at best anyhow. Fortunately, in the case of, of Iran, these structural conditions are not the same. With respect to Iran, there is a credible military threat, not only by us, but by Israel. So the reason why I saw this line that was producing 20% uh, enriched uranium in Iran. It went flat when Bibi put out a red line that said 250 kilos and we're going to act. And it went to 240 and then it went flat. Now actually by the agreement it's been reduced and it's going to be eliminated, which is a good thing. Secondly, in the case of uh, there's no great power that's pr providing guardianship for Iran. And thirdly, its economy actually is connected to uh, the, to the rest of the economy. So I think those situations are, are fortunately different, which is good news for the Iranian case. Do you agree, Mr. Toby? I do. Um, I think the most salient point is that Iran uh, differs from North Korea and that North Korea is a weak state surrounded by strong states, the largest economies, the largest populations, the largest land masses in the world, whereas Iran is a, a regionally strong power surrounded by relatively weak states. So that would argue, in my mind, for 
Well, no, I guess not. I was going to say for why they would be more interested in holding on to weapons than in giving them up. But I, I'm also interested, Graham, in, in your testimony, and you referred to it a little while ago, that um, the claims that we can't reach advantageous agreements with governments that can't be trusted um, is just not correct. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit more, because that's one of the biggest concerns I hear from people who look at the negotiations with Iran and they say, well, you know, how can we negotiate with them? We just can't trust them. So I, I may be too much of an old Cold Warrior, but I, I think of Iran more or less like the Soviet Union as a first approximation. There's many, many differences, and I'm sure that's and many Iranians will take, uh, take offense. But basically, uh, a society with the, not, the, not the Iranian society, in the same way not the Russian people, but the regime, which is a regime that makes no sense, okay? and which is pursuing objectives inimical to the US and to most of its neighbors. So that's just, I take it as a fact. So when I then, uh, uh, look at the situation, I say, that's where I start. So will such a regime lie, steal, and cheat when it can? Yes. I think even, as Ronald Reagan said, this is in their character for the Soviet Union. And Lenin explained, this is your duty. So when you were tricking somebody, that was when you were a good Leninist, okay? So I would say, as a first approximation, assume that the party is not trying to be forthcoming, it's not trying to be, it's trying to trick you, trying to deceive you, trying to cheat. So then the ob obligation for us is not to be deceived and not to be naive, but to expect behavior that we're not, and then, the, 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 then agreements need to be about items that we can see visibly and verify through the inspection regime with the expectation that for everything else that we can't see, we're way back to ourselves and to intelligence independent of this, of this constraint. So the reason why in the old Cold War we constrained launchers, not warheads, even though warheads were the things that would kill us, was because we could only see launchers and we couldn't get any inspection or or any regime that would respect, you know, that would constrain the warheads. Mm -hmm. So that's why, again, if I look at the Iranian case, closing down Iraq so that it's not going to produce plutonium, that's one of two ways for Iran to get a bomb. Great, I would say that's a good one. And similarly, with respect to the enrichment, I, I've got that constrained enough, though I didn't think that's where they were going to be acting before. So that drives me, as we were discussing earlier, to the covert route. And so it's what this agreement adds to our current national intelligence and that of our allies that'll be, for me, the beef in the agreement. Yeah. So as we think about the covert route, because that's the other concern that I hear, is that um, you know, it's fine to address um, what we already know about what they're doing to build a weapon, but um, we're not going to know what we don't know. And, um, and so how do, how do you build into these kinds of negotiations um, ways to address the potential to build other covert um, operations that we wouldn't be aware of until too late? Well, if, in, the, in, the, uh, in, the, in the fact sheet that was passed out, 
it was suggested, and now we'll have to look to see what finally they bring home, that there would be continuous surveillance of Iran's uranium mills for 25 years. If that's the case, then they can't be producing additional uh, uranium. That there would be sur continuous surveillance of production of centrifuges and their storage facilities. Again, if they can't produce centrifuges, they can't enrich uranium. That there would be a dedicated pro procurement channel where all the things they bought that were dual use would have to be reported. That's a very interesting one because they'll go off buying some other stuff to be helpful to their program. And so that's an easy one to find them you know, violating if they do, that there would be a mechanism for challenge inspection. So there's a half dozen things of that sort. And if those were added, those seem to me to be likely to be big pluses to where we would be in the absence of an agreement. But if I could just ask sure. one final question. But opponents of the negotiations would say, well, there's not gonna be any guarantees on all of those things because the IAEA is not gonna get access to all of Iran at any time um, to be able to determine whether um, whether there are other um, efforts going on, whether there are other centrifuges being built, whether there are, you know, other, um, whether things are being smuggled in that could have an impact. So, so how, do you, how do you address those kinds of concerns, or is that, um, should we not be worried about that? Well, I think we should certainly be worried about it, and Will has something to say about that, because, I mean, he's been thinking about how the what you would learn from uh, the PMD might contribute to this. I, for myself, I would say, first, it's a requirement for American intelligence. Either we are successful or not only American, Israeli, French, others that are looking and who are looking intensely about the other, other activities that are not reported. And if it's, a, if it's an illegal activity, if they're buying material for a bomb from North Korea, they're not going to report that. They're going to, you know, they're, they're proceed. So I would say that the first is, is looking at it for ourselves. Secondly, the challenge mechanism will be very relevant for this. So if, as the Supreme Leader said yesterday, your military facilities are off limits, and so if something's going on in a military facility, IAEA can't go inspect it, I would say that's a showstopper. Uh, no, the terms of the agreement is that there needs, it can't be just fishing expeditions, but with the challenge inspection mechanism, one's got to be able to go to a place where there's probable cause. And you have to remember, Fordow was built in a military facility. So if military facilities were off limits, this would be a, you know, a, lo a loser's game. So I'd say that's the way I would go with it. Will, and Will did you want to add? Sure. With respect to, well, I would say that um, it's important to remember that the process of verification is like constructing a mosaic. Um, there are some tiles that are going to be missing, and the inspectors need to go pursue those. There's some tiles that may be inaccurate. You may have a red tile that appears in the seascape that should all be blue and green, and they have to figure out why that's appeared. Um, I believe it's actually fairly, if there is a... Uh, a complete and correct declaration, um, it is difficult to actually hide a covert program. Now you could say, well, they'll just lie in their declaration, but if there's access to documents and people and other things, which are actually less important than the anytime, anywhere inspection, it's really a much more mundane process that involves um, 
detective work, then you, you identify inconsistencies. Now, you may not identify the exact site that you're dealing with, but those inconsistencies lead you to other things. And if they're forced to answer those inconsistencies, it becomes difficult for them to actually maintain this lie. It also helps to deter them from pursuing that, that program because they know eventually they'll either have to answer those questions or be caught stonewalling. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Sorry Thank to you. Over. Thank you. Listen, uh, we appreciate very much your testimony. I've had just a few closing questions. Would it be fair to say that, uh, back to PMD, and I want to, to be fairly brief here, but um, would it be fair to say that our insistence on the PMD piece uh, would be ind indicative to Iran as to how thorough we're going to be as we move along with uh, adherence to the agreement and just the inspections process in general? From the standpoint of us forcing that on the front end, uh, they will take that, will they not, as an indication of how seriously uh, we're going to try to enforce any agreement that takes place. Is that a fair statement? Yes, absolutely. If we allow them to flout IAEA um, requests for data now, they have every reason to believe they'll get away with that in the future. And do you agree with that, Dr. I, I'm less clear. I, I would say that the, the, uh, all of these things are being haggled about, and I think we've insisted that there be uh, interviews with the uh, with with identified individuals, uh, and there have to be visits to sites. But if I were running the Iranian program, can I find a way to do that that still doesn't quote full disclosure? I don't think you'll ever have quote full disclosure. So I think it'll it'll be a back and forth. Would it be fair to say that had we had any time anywhere inspections uh, with North Korea, there's no way they would have advanced as far as they did, uh, unbeknownst to us? I'm actually not sure that is the case. If we had any time anywhere inspections but didn't have the cooperation in terms of a declaration and access to people and documents, I'm not sure that would have worked. And there is an historical example. The Clinton administration um, became suspicious of a facility called Kumchong Ri and actually forced an inspection of that place. And it turned out basically to be an empty underground facility. Um, and that shows the weakness of relying too much on the anytime, anywhere concept as opposed to this building of a mosaic concept. Mm -hmm. Dr. Allison. I'd go back to the, the big, the, the tall pole in the tent is American intelligence. So if we have good intelligence, we're going to find the things. If we don't, uh, shame on us. Would it be fair to say that uh, uh, large amounts of sanctions relief without Iran being in full compliance uh, uh, could lead to the same? That's exactly what we did, I guess, in North Korea, could lead to a similar outcome. Yes, I believe so. I, I agree, but I would say that the, the sanctions relief needs to come as they implement the particular terms of the agreement. That's what the administration said they're going to insist on, and I think that's what they should do. Yeah. Yeah. And then this is somewhat controversial, and I'm going to phrase it. We, we've had, as you know, five briefings, three of which were private. Uh, and in those briefings, by the way, had almost full attendance and a lot of debate. Uh, one of the more controversial statements um, that was made in those meetings uh, by witnesses, Dr. Allison, you, you allude to, you, 
you alluded to the fact that Iran believes there's a military threat today. Our intelligence says that's not the case. They do not believe there's a military threat uh, by the U.S. Um, and so some of the witnesses have responded by saying there's multiple things we need to be looking at, much of which was asked about today. But a, another component, a fourth component, would be Congress weighing in now uh, relative to our intentions militarily uh, if they did not uh, adhere to an agreement. And of course, you get into some qualitative issues as to whether it's marginal or whether it's something that's in great violation. I could say it a little bit more strongly, but I, I don't want my question to be misinterpreted by uh, people on looking. But how important is it uh, with an agreement in place for, uh, for Iran to believe that if they don't comply, there will be military consequences? I, I, I believe that there needs, I believe there is a credible military threat. I believe that our Israeli friends provide an even more credible military threat. And I believe the fear of a military threat, if Iran should try to go the last mile, is a huge factor in their calculations about not going the last mile. About the current intelligence on whether today they fear a threat, uh, given that we're negotiating with them, I'd say that's on the side. But should, would, it, would you, would you, allude, would you feel that Congress should somehow weigh in on that fact on the front end relative to an agreement being reached uh, that during the, during the uh, entirety of this agreement that, that Congress feels strongly that if it's violated, uh, there, should be a, there should be a military threat? Is that something that you consider to be important? I, I would have to think hard about that, but I... I would myself, uh, and I, have, I would think that if, if we had, not for some minor violation, but if we received evidence today that Iran was trying to dash the last two months to a bomb, would I be urging us to bomb them to prevent that happening? And I, I personally would. Well. I. I think that expressions of unity by the U.S. government always get the attention of foreign, policy, foreign powers. And if the Congress were going to take such an action, it would likely uh, attract attention in Tehran. Uh, I see Senator Coons has arrived. I'm going to step out. I have such great trust for uh, the ranking member. I'm going to leave it in his hands. Um, I do want to say on the front end that the... Uh, record will remain open without uh, any opposition until Friday. And if y'all would answer questions um, up until that time, I'd appreciate that very quick, very quickly. We thank you for being here today. We thank you for your testimony. With that, I'm going to defer to Senator Coons. Thank you, Chairman uh, Corker and uh, Ranking Member Cardin uh, for um, holding not just this hearing, but a whole series of very valuable hearings uh, as uh, we consider whether or not uh, there will be a a deal between the P5 plus one and Iran about their uh, illicit nuclear weapons program. Uh, and thank you uh, to Mr. Toby and Dr. Allison. It's a great honor to be with you today and get your insights on previous experiences and uh, attempts at nonproliferation. Now, let me first just um, talk a little bit about what Iran's doing uh, and their tactics and how you appraise their current tactics. Um, there was, as you well know, um, a 
an effort by some of our European allies in 2004 to negotiate uh, a halt uh, to um, Iran's uh, enrichment activities. And since then, Rouhani um, has publicly remarked that they were negotiating with our European allies on a halt to their enrichment activities at the same time that they were completing the installation of um, some key components of their illicit nuclear program. Um, in your view, and I'd be interested in both your answers, um, is that essentially what they're doing now? They're negotiating for a 10 or 15 year uh, pause uh, or uh, restructuring of their nuclear program, uh, fully intending uh, that they will either continue the research and development vital to the next stage of their nuclear weapons ac acquisition during that 10 or 15 year period, or uh, intending to find other paths uh, towards a sneak out or breakout, or do you assess that they actually seriously are willing to give up on a nuclear weapons program? I think all of their past activities and statements point to the former of your possibilities. Dr. Allison. Yeah, I believe that Iran has had serious ambitions to have nuclear weapons, does have serious ambitions to have nuclear weapons, will have serious ambitions to have nuclear weapons. So we should assume that as a constant. And the question in this is not can we convert them but it's rather whether we can constrain them in ways that advantage us. Exactly. So what we've heard, I think, from senators on both sides of the aisle in these hearings is that distrust but verify is probably a better watchword for our negotiations with them. Dr. Allison, you're in many ways best known for a model of analysis of the actions of nations that presumes um, that they act as rational um, actors. Um, let's assume, and I know this is a big assumption, <laughs> that the regime in Tehran within their own framework and their own ideology is behaving rationally in their negotiations. Um, what piece of the proposed um, architecture of this agreement do you think they would be most likely to exploit in a determined persistent effort to break out or sneak out? Uh, I agree with you that I'm convinced they have nuclear weapons ambitions uh, and they are only engaging in these negotiations uh, with us for tactical purposes. Uh, for a temporary cessation. So let's imagine they're a rational actor. How would you assume they might try to break out given the structure of the likely agreement as, as known to date? Uh, again, a very good question. Uh, the, so an Iran that had serious nuclear ambitions would think of all the ways to get a bomb. Mm -hmm. so one way is to make them at an overt site, but of course there's people watching. And the second way, is to get them at a covert site, build them in a covert site. And the third way is to buy a bomb or material for a bomb from North Korea. So as I say in my written testimony that I submitted, I worry more about North Korea and Pakistan mm -hmm. when I think about a bomb going off in the U.S. in the next 15 years than I do about Iran. Though I think Iran is a, a worthy challenge and is the most urgent of them. So uh, I... A rational Iranian could conceivably be engaged in this whole set of activities as a conjurer's act. Could easily be the case that this is what's going on with this hand, while the other hand is actually doing the work. How will we know that? Only if American intelligence discovers it. Not likely from IEE or from any, or, 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 or one of our uh, uh, friendly intelligence uh, you know, co colleagues. So do we need to be alert, looking, taking every possible source, assuming that something may be happening. Yes, I would say that would be a reasonable. The buy option 
again, there's not much discussed, but would be a, a very interesting option. So what does North Korea need? Money. What does it have? Fissile material and bombs. Uh, what does it do? As Bob Gates testified here once before to, to armed services, what we know about North Korea is they sell anything they have to anyone who will pay. Hmm? So why to dismiss that possibility? I wouldn't dismiss it for a second. So I would look at that as another possible route to be worried about. And the agreement will not solve all of those problems, though some aspects of the agreement, including the inspection uh, um, and, and a challenge mechanism, may again provide a few more peepholes. So let's turn to that, if I could, for my last question, uh, Dr. Allison. And I uh, agree with you that the prospect of uh, North Korea being willing to share, trade, sell, um, both its proliferation knowledge and its actual weapons um, is a very sobering uh, possibility. Um, but to the inspection regime, one of the things that is uh, held up as uh, the most uh, possibly beneficial to us component of an agreement, P5 plus one with Iran, is actual inspections. Um, so as you mentioned, if Iran continues its nuclear ambitions, it's most likely to do so at a covert site, um, and our ability to get inspections uh, anytime, anywhere of sites of any type is an absolutely critical piece of this. Previous inspection efforts with other regimes have faltered when the Security Council was no longer united in insisting on inspections. Um, the proposed structure that is rumored in the press uh, to be on the table um, would be a commission where, as long as our European allies uh, stayed with us, um, the Iranians and even the Russians and Chinese, if they happened to come together in opposing an inspection, could not block an inspection. Do you think this sort of a commission structure could function, could function well, and could allow us um, some confidence that we would have the opportunity for meaningful inspections, even of military sites, even of suspected sites? And what's your view on a, on a possible 30-day timeline? Um, again, I'm just working off of uh, suggestions in, in, the, in the public sources about what might be on the table. Well, I'd make a short comment, and then Will actually addresses the, the question of uh, anytime, anywhere, and, and has been doing a, trying to drill down on that. I, I would say that the, the, from what I can understand about the negotiations that are now going on, they've recognized the problem that you point to, which is, as Will points, one of Will's lessons is, that the inspection regime is only as strong as the political support for it. So if the political support in the Security Council gets split, lo and behold, the regime becomes, the, the inspection regime becomes weakened. So what they've tried to do is design around that. And if they design around it successfully, uh, that would be a big plus. That would be a new, a new step forward. Whether they will actually have that and how it will work in the agreement, I'm not sure. With respect to the um, security, well, the unity of the, the political support for inspections, we had a rare moment in 1991 when Saddam was the undeniable aggressor against Kuwait. Uh, the Soviet Union was faltering at that point, um, and we really did enjoy a, an international consensus that was mustered against him. And even in those circumstances, and even in circumstances in which there was undeniable evidence of nuclear and chemical, biological, uh, nu nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons work, um, the consensus of eventually faded. And so I think that it will be very difficult to maintain. 
such a consensus. And is the structure that I described that, that may or may not be on the table one that you think might be sufficient to sustain that inspection regime, or would you be very concerned about I think it's a good idea, and a structural answer to that problem is helpful. But ultimately, you know, nations are, are independent actors, and, um, you know, Russia can make its own choices. Um, with respect to paths that Iran might take, your previous question, if, as I noted earlier, if, if it's a problem that Iran is two months away from a nuclear weapon today, I don't know how we can be comfortable with an agreement that allows them to be in that position in 10, 12, or 15 years. Agreed. Thank you very much for your testimony. Appreciate the insights. Thank you, Senator Gordon. Well, let me thank uh, both of you for your testimonies. What we do know is what's in the framework agreement. What we've been informed uh, through hearings are some of the challenges in the negotiations. We've been briefed in a classified setting as to the status of intelligence information and the status of our negotiators, all of which goes into the equations of us being prepared to deal with the challenges that we'll confront uh, later this month or early next month, assuming a, uh, an agreement is reached, or what we need to do if an agreement is not reached. But we also can learn from our past experiences, and I think both of you have been very helpful to us in sharing uh, your insight as to uh, previous circumstances and how it can be relevant to our analysis of an effective agreement with Iran to prevent it from becoming a nuclear weapon state. So on behalf of the committee, we thank you for your candor and for your testimony here today in, in advancing our ability uh, to review a potential agreement. And with that, the committee stands adjourned.